This is Maris from Zero Waste Trash Talk, and today we're talking to Alex Truelove, the director of U.S. PERG's organizational efforts to reduce waste in order to improve public health, protect the environment, and conserve resources. Their work includes campaigns to eliminate the most harmful and least recyclable single-use plastics and to promote producer responsibility. Amazing. Follow him on Twitter at Alex C. Truelove. Alex Truelove is um, someone that, Michael, you found this article on the Hill? Yeah, the article. uh, That he wrote? (laughs) Basically, the insanity of plastic recycling. And mm-hmm. it seems spot on for the what we've been talking about internally and on the podcast that that plastic recycling is broken, and uh, so and it has been, I, and it has <laughs> been. And so I, I reached out to Alex um, because I thought, hey, this is if we want to talk about this, let's bring somebody on that's you know got some street cred, some writer cre- uh, credibility, not just us talking about it here in our East Nashville neighborhoods. So, uh, Alex, thanks for writing that article. And uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and what led to writing this article and, and these, this conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. So my official title is the Zero Waste Director with a national nonprofit called the U.S. Public Interest Research Group that is often shortened to U.S. PERG because that's easier and, and it's PERG. stuck with those who know of the PERGs. And I've been in this position for almost three years. The organization largely has been working on zero waste issues for a long time. We were um, the organization, not the only organization, but we were pretty active in a lot of like the early bottle bills and container deposit laws in like Massachusetts and Oregon back in like the eighties. And so it's always been a part of the organizational DNA but it was really only about three years ago when I joined the organization that everybody sort of collectively decided to launch a national program focused on zero waste. And I think part of it was just the emergence of a lot of related issues of plastic pollution in the ocean and sort of the discovery of how much of it had accumulated there and kind of a lot of other things at the same time. So it's been really fun to kind of work in this space as it's gotten so much attention and momentum, even if, you know, I think some of the solutions are, um, you know, a little misguided. And so I was, um, I I work a lot, both kind of um, with a lot of our state groups. So we have a pretty utilitarian name naming system where we have USPIRG and then in Massachusetts, we have MassPIRG and Pennsylvania, we have PennPIRG and CalPIRG in California. And so I suppose that's what makes us different in some ways than other kind of environmentally or public health focused nonprofits is because we do so much work kind of at the state level and kind of as a network as opposed to just sort of, you know, in DC or something. Although we do a lot of work at the federal level as well. And that's why I was following, there was a hearing that the Senate was holding, uh, which I mentioned in my article a couple of weeks ago now. And I kind of knew what was coming because the hearing itself was being organized um, by Republicans because they control the Senate right now. And the framing of the hearing, I forget exactly what it was titled, but it was all about recycling. And so I was kind of afraid that the same conversation was gonna happen in this hearing as it has been for the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, which is basically how can we recycle our way out of the problem? 
Um, you know, how can we deal with plastic pollution and fix it through recycling? And I think you guys know as well as anybody that that's just, you know, that's <laughs> we failed to do that for a long time now. And I think the most frustrating part was that there are so many other more interesting and creative solutions, I think, moving forward in terms of kind of designing our world and the products we use and all that kind of stuff. And there was no mention of reusability. There was no mention of maybe a little bit of compostability in terms of compostable plastics. Um, but really, it was just so focused on, I think, kind of this old idea and one that has consistently failed. And I thought, this is insane. Um, and so, hence <laughs> the insanity of plastic recycling. And I sort of wrote it in the heat of the moment as I was watching this <laughs> hearing and then kind of had to, you know, dial it back, uh, you know, a little I, bit. I, I always have to dial. Maris and Jess yeah. are always like, Michael, dial that back. Take the curse words out. Quit being so angry. <laughs> right. But it <laughs> the, did help the, me that, yeah. <laughs> that passion venting help, session. Me, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the passion kind of helped me find a thesis at least. Well, I like uh, I like how you you started with a quote about what insanity is. It's doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. And I, I think it was clear when we saw, and I think uh, Alex, you and I talked about this on the on the phone the other day when we connected the the PBS Frontline Plastic Wars documentary. They go back and they traced the beginnings of the you know the plastic recycling business and interviewed people that were involved and. They basically were like, yeah, we didn't think it was going to work. It's just a way for us to keep making plastic. <laughs> and so it's pretty clear. I mean, if, if we, I'm a cynical person and I, I kind of thought that anyway, but then to hear them say that and have them dig up all this, uh, all the paperwork and letters and, and then later emails and all of that, that's corroborated that this is a big smokescreen. It just, it's infuriating. I mean, I'm, and I don't blame you for being irritated and knowing what was coming on the on the uh, Senate hearing because, you know, mo dark money, money from the fossil fuel industry flows into all the pockets of these people if they're making laws that they want to protect their industry. And uh, it's, it's uh, anyway, <laughs> I yeah. hear you. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I think that realization too, that plastics really is an extension of the fossil fuel industry. It's not new to anyone who understands that plastics are made primarily from, from natural gas byproducts, but to see, especially more recently, people sort of make that connection. Like, oh, all of those, you know, the Chevrons, the Exxons, the same ones who, you know, knew about climate change and buried that evidence, you know, they're, they're also the ones who are supplying a lot of this. And, and, and in many ways, um, my understanding is the fossil fuel industry, as they sort of see declines in, um, you know, gas and oil power and the electricity grid and our automobiles, the petrochemical growth is kind of where they're turning their attention, which I think for me makes it feel like, you know, even more important to be doing this work. So you watched the front see. line, the front line. Yeah. Um, wow. I thought that was so incredible. One thing that I thought was really interesting was the marketing and the advertising immediately after the, the first productions of plastic and how it went from convenience, convenience, convenience. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. You can literally just throw it away. And then eventually it went, it transformed into the Indian with the tear. And everyone right. remembers that. Everyone remembers that. And that pivotal moment was when they transferred all of the responsibility to us as the consumer when we had absolutely no control over it whatsoever. And it, it 
tells the story so well about how even since was that in the 80s what's that yeah yeah i think so Oh Since no no the the no, the, uh, the end in the America the beautiful recycling program was in the seventies. I remember 70s. seeing it on TV. I'm older than you guys, so it, it, it really affected everybody at the time. I mean, it's yeah. been happening for that long. Like we have mm -hmm. been convinced that it's our fault for that long, and that's why it's so hard to change people's minds about it. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. this has been a way of life for a long time. And you still hear that too. Like I, I won't name names, but in the same Senate hearing, there was a lot of industry representatives that were witnesses and representing, you know, consumer packaging associations and that kind of stuff. And you hear them saying the same thing, you know, we want to be good actors, but you know, consumers have to, you know, the starts with them kind of, you know, the same sort of transferring of guilt and responsibility. Um, it's kind of incredible. I'd, I'd like to see some witnesses on the other side of that, uh, like 10 years or so from now when they're all going to jail for uh, corrupting the environment and killing millions of people. This has been very eye-opening for myself. I have not known a lot of these things until this last year when we started this group, truly and honestly. And it really made me feel bad at first. I thought, well we're all doomed <laughs> like there's no turning back now and i think a lot of people feel that way they think well why should i care then if this is just a downhill thing why should we bother ourselves trying to change when we're such small pieces in this and i think creating the the alternative idea is what we're trying to do and mm -hmm. help people see that no 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 this is going to change it has to change it will change and i was interested to hear you were talking about the newer solutions or these creative solutions what are some of those what are some of the creative solutions that you were talking about earlier yeah well i think i kind of look at it as a multi-step process and um i think there are a few promising things that i see going on that i think you know could represent a better future I think first is just the efforts around trying to get rid of like the most common, most hazardous single-use plastics. And I'm not going to, you know, sit here and suggest that banning plastic shopping bags or styrofoam containers is going to, you know, change the entire market. But I think those conversations in places where they've passed those policies, I think that's really gotten people's attention. Um, in terms of both, you know, this is a problem that we need to fix, but also sort of realizing, yeah, like we actually don't need a lot of these things. And some of the most most um, common and most hazardous single-use plastics out there, I think, are also in some ways the most replaceable. And so I think that's been a great place to start in terms of kind of winning hearts and minds. Um, so I think there's kind of that, you know, getting rid of the worst stuff. But then at a certain point, obviously, you have to figure out a different system in terms of what we're moving towards. And I think that's where I get really excited about what what are, at this point is mostly pretty local small scale solutions, but really focused on um, reusability, almost kind of bringing back like the milkman model in some places. And there's a number of different versions of that there's an organization called Loop that has been partnering with some kind of big consumer brand companies about, you know, basically providing a lot of, you know, everyday you know, things that you need, I don't know, toothpaste, shampoo, that kind of stuff in reusable containers that you can return, which, you know, I'd like to see that 
um, system being offered to you know smaller companies and things like that. But I think you know it's a start. I think it shows that you know at least um, people's heads are in the right place in terms of understanding that that could be something we could move towards. Uh, I think and a lot of other you know kind of similar programs like that. So like restaurant takeout programs. Um, there are, this is I think happening more in Europe to my understanding, but it could be wrong. There are, you know, towns where they have like a, almost like if you can imagine like a, a Nashville branded um, reusable takeout containers than any restaurant, <laughs> any restaurant you Michael's, go to. Michael's <laughs> laughing because we have to tell you something. We have to oh, tell yeah. you something. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you want me to tell? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's what we were working on was uh, we actually were, pitched our idea to the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and we're given a scholarship to take our reusable takeout container program through their whole, uh, uh, you know, system of uh, starting a business. And we were mm -hmm. ready to, to launch some tests here in East Nashville and then the tornado came right through our neighborhood. Oh, and uh, we, we decided to regroup and maybe focus on uh, big industrial uh, cafeterias and co collegiate uh, cafeterias and institutional type cafeterias mm -hmm. instead of takeout. And then COVID shut everything down. <laughs> so we were on that track. And actually, we started this podcast as a way to uh, bypass, yeah, to connect and bypass the whole social media algorithms and really connect with our, our group here in, in uh, Nashville and to promote that idea. And then, then we just kind of were like, we we're sitting here after what, two weeks of, of being stuck at home going, why don't we just buy this, the recording stuff? Cause we can't use the studio anymore and make podcasting our business right now. And so that's where we're at is our, we feel like our job now is podcasting instead of mm -hmm. this reusable but takeout container. With the reusable to go container program, that was our baby. We were avidly studying the logistics of it and trying to make sense of how we were going to do this using mm -hmm. East Nashville as our main market our test market, if you will. And we were, we were going, we were branding, we had everything in line and just one thing after the next kind of shut us down, but it didn't stifle us. Cause, and it's really inspiring to hear you talk about reuse because even with the pandemic there, are barriers to entry but reuse isn't dead we have to figure something else out otherwise it just the linear economy is going to drive us all into the ground a lot mm -hmm. sooner than later and and i think that the reuse idea that you're seeing in europe if it if they can do it somewhere else then we can do it too yeah just take yeah. political will Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to see, man, <laughs> a tornado and a pandemic. Yeah, back to back. Uh, that's, that's back, to back. <laughs> yeah. The tornado well, hit like March, what was it, uh, 6th, March 4th, something like that. And yeah. then, pand you know, we had locked down from the pandemic on the 15th. So it was literally back to back. It was pretty dark. City. There were some yeah. dark days yeah. here. We, we were out of toilet paper and stuff before and uh, hand hand sanitizer and paper towels because we'd all been buying it to donate to people who lost their houses. Yeah. So we'd cleaned all the stores out before COVID even hit. And then so there's really <laughs> some shortages going on here. Oh, wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean. It's an interesting recycling story with toilet paper too. <laughs> that's that's actually going to be an upcoming uh, episode of ours. Uh, I the days. Posted on, the days. I posted a oh. question on our Nashville Facebook uh, group 
that asked if anybody wanted to talk about their bidets and the conversation blew up. It was like, wow, everybody wants to talk about their bidets. <laughs> and uh, I ordered one and uh, have been using it and we're going to kind of build our episode around talking about that on toilet paper. I'm going to so, order one cool. too. Yeah. Right on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, interesting solutions. I mean, even here in Nashville, you're talking about the reuse stuff. We have, uh, we well, now we have two refill stores, but uh, the first one in our neighborhood was uh, the Goodfill, and we have our a place where we can buy shampoo bars and refill soaps, and uh, and she researches the the origins of everything and make sure that they're made ethically and produced environmentally friendly. And uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty lucky to have that in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I personally like, is there anything like that in where you live in your neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe, yeah, probably a half mile Northwest of where I live. There's a great place called, uh, I think it's called refill. Yeah. It sounds like a very similar <laughs> place where you can One get one of those. Yeah. Same concept. The package free stores, are so exciting to me. I see yeah. pictures online all the time. They're like, would you want something like this? And it's just fruit and vegetables all over the place. We actually just had Ellery Richardson on about uh, co-ops, food co-ops. And I had cool. not really known anything about that beforehand. And I think that whole idea, local food, package free, sustainability at its finest, um, that would be a great solution. But in order to get those things off the ground, there's got to be money. And that's the hardest part, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I have enormous respect for these entrepreneurs who are coming up with these zero waste shops and stuff. And thankfully, the one in my neighborhood is back open again. It was you know closed down for a while. And they figured out a way to negotiate around the pandemic. But okay. not only I, I, and. I mean, I, I loved having access to all these kind of bulk things, you know, these, these giant vats of like laundry detergent. I can just refill, you know, the, uh, you guys, I'm sure, have very similar across the country. But I've also discovered products that are not only zero waste, but in some ways actually better versions of what I had before. Like I, for washing dishes now, I have basically like a loofah, like the actual gourd, which I embarrassed to say until like a few years ago, didn't even realize was actually like a a thing you know i thought it was just you know there's like the plastic versions right that you can get um and it's incredibly effective and like when it's it, i mean mine's been lasting for months but eventually like i can just compost it afterwards brilliant there's 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 a lot of those changes that i don't think people realize how easy there there are some easy changes and some <clears> of them seem more expensive at the time but in the long run they aren't they save you money like switching to a you know a a safety razor or the old fashioned type of razor with razor blades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I use that analogy all the time because, you know, when you pay $15 for three, uh, you know, Gillette or Schick triple or quadruple blade plastic disposable heads for your razors at the store Yeah, where I have got the finest platinum razor blades. Me uh, too. I got that, one too. Yeah. And I got them in bulk and it's like literally the finest cutting edge you can make. And you, if you buy them in bulk, you get them for nine cents each and I can use both sides. <laughs> so yeah. it's probably about two cents a shave at that yeah, point. Yeah. Those proprietary ones are so expensive. Yeah. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Toothpaste tablets. Oh man. We love us some toothpaste love. tablets. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that my, took, uh, that's my next thing. It took a little bit to get used to it. It takes at least two or three times before you realize the change. But but for me, it was easy because uh, I don't. I thought the foaming in my mouth kind of made me gag anyway. I didn't like. I didn't like regular toothpaste very much. I use so little all the time, and now the toothpaste okay. tabs is like oh, just win, once win. you get 
Yeah, it's a great thing. No packaging. I, I, I don't know if I told you, Maris, I, I went and I wanted to fill up because we talk about it. I like to go over there and I fill up. I get like a little mason jar. Sometimes I have to up, fill up from Michael. She does. She comes and fills up from my <laughs> house sometimes. Can I have sometimes. some of your toothpaste pat tablets? Well, this last time I kind of got carried away and dumped it into a big bag. It was $70 of toothpaste tabs. <laughs> so you're the reason why I can't go and buy them. Or they're it might be. out because of you. It might be. <laughs> I didn't mean to hog them. I just I just wanted a jar full. I don't That's want cool. to mess around with a little with packet. Yeah, you can. You can. So I'd recommend trying those, Alex. It's, it's good. Yeah. yeah. But the Easier small change from a friend. What's that? I said easier to borrow from a friend. That's true. In tablet form too. So, um, so back to the plastics uh, issue, and, and something mm -hmm. that that keeps coming back to me over and over again uh, is, um, so, um, what's the figure? I think the latest figure was there's we've produced 359 million metric tons of plastic since plastic yeah. was so plastic was invented and went into use in late 40s, early 50s. Um, and and I don't. That seems like this enormous figure, but also keep. I want people to keep in mind, plastic is lightweight, <laughs> so the mass and the bulk of that has got to be huge. So, <clears throat> say we really have, you know, done the the number ten percent. That ten percent of that's been recycled. I, I actually think that's generous. Uh, the ten percent number. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's a pretty that small amount. That's a small amount of. Uh, of the overall plastic in the world. And so you think about the volume, then you also think about how plastic can only be recycled two, sometime, maybe three times, mm -hmm. and then it just in the landfill. So we're really only, uh, you know, we're only slowing down the process of sending it to the landfill. That's the best case scenario is we're just slowing this down. I, I mean, I don't think we should be recycling plastic at all. I think if we took that recycling mentality away from everybody with curbside like here in Nashville we do curbside and they keep shrinking the numbers of the types of plastics that they can accept because mm -hmm. they don't have a market for them I kind of feel like if we just said no plastic it would get rid of a lot of the contamination with diapers and weird stuff being put in there and we wouldn't be spending good money after bad and it would make people have to come to the realization that plastic isn't really recyclable and it's not the best thing to be doing. Is that is that off base? I, this is where I keep going and everyone looks at me like, you're crazy, you should be recycling <laughs> if you can. And that's a, yeah, I think that's a really thought-provoking question because even if there are some plastics now that have a decent recycling rate, and those, I mean, we're talking about a pretty narrow, like numbers one and two, and they, you know, have to, you know, typically like clear and they don't have a shrink wrapped, you know, uh, labeling, you know, that's a pretty small sliver of the plastic pie. You know, is it worth sort of perpetuating this whole thing that we can recycle our plastics just because there are a few plastics that are recyclable? I don't know. I don't have a good answer, but I think it's a really thought provoking question. Are we doing kind of more harm. <laughs> well, I wonder good. if that awareness for people in general, because there's already people that have stopped recycling. And I don't mm -hmm. think that it was with that thought in mind, Michael, I don't think people are thinking what you are thinking. They thought, we're not recycling with China anymore. So there's obviously no recycling being done. And so I'm not going to do this anymore. And that was kind of like a loss of hope. Whereas I feel like your idea, Michael, is kind of hey, we understand the system, it's, it's not working, there's not a future in this, so we're just not gonna recycle it, but we're also gonna try and not buy it 
because we know we can't recycle it. But well, I think that's it's yeah, so that's impossible what... to do that. It's on yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah, you're you're right. Like our choices are limited at the store. It's not. It's what to say. Oh, you should make better choices. That that's like saying, oh, you shouldn't yeah. fly. That means, oh, you can't participate in modern society. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. you want to be green. But I think if you, you know, we talk about that ten percent number, and so that means that ninety percent of the of the business model of recycling plastic for cities is a failure. What else do we say? Okay, you can fail ninety percent. We're going to keep supporting this. Right. I mean, there just really isn't that many other things like that in society that we're willing to just throw money away at. Yeah. And, and we saw with the in Nashville when they announced the ban on clamshell containers, plastic containers, everybody got all worked up. They're like, we're going to recycle anyway. It's like it made them deal with the fact that they had to, that their, that their favorite thing, their to-go containers, their produce containers were no longer recyclable. And people were angry about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wonder if we just said no plastic at all, if it makes everybody really angry and then, then starts focusing that anger at the plastics manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this doesn't necessarily answer your question, Michael, but I do think moving forward for a couple of reasons, we might have more of an opportunity to really hold producers responsible for their claims. Like I think there's a, a liability and I think part of it is that we're finding out more, like unfortunately there's no national clearinghouse about exactly what gets recycled and you know obviously there's is it collected and then is it actually sorted by the local facility and then is there actually a market you know so each one of those it's less and less of you know the material that actually makes it through which is why i agree with you michael that i think 10 percent is probably a pretty inflated number because i think often that really is that that uh, refers to the collection rate and not what actually gets turned into. Yeah, I think the other stati- statistic is 2% of that is actually yeah. recycled. 2% I've of the 10%. Yeah. there's. You guys might be interested. There's a report that came out uh, like six months ago, I think, over the winter um, that Greenpeace put out. And I, I know some of the folks who did the um, basically the survey. And the, the aim of the study was to survey as many recyclers across the country and actually find out, and it's kind of crazy that nobody has really done this before. I mean, the EPA collects da- data every couple of years, but it's it's pretty vague. And, and their aim was, what are all the different things that you actually collect and don't collect? And then how much of that stuff actually goes to sorting facility and is sorted and has a market? How much of that stuff is actually sold and then turned into? And so there are numbers behind all those things. And what's interesting is that the Federal Trade Commission actually has like definitions and standards for what... Um, can actually be called recyclable, basically. It has to meet a threshold. And only number ones and twos in very specific situations met that threshold and everything else didn't. And what is interesting about that is I think now that we have more information, I think companies can be held more legally liable. There was actually a suit last year, I think, a woman in California sued Keurig because she found out that those K-cups weren't actually recyclable and they were making claims, but in her community, they weren't. And so I think obviously you guys know there's this disconnect between what people say, you know, the plastic bag association, or I forget what it's called. <laughs> there's, there's a group out there and one of their claims is plastic bags are recycled, plastic bag, you know, and there's this theoretical term of recyclable. And then there's this actual you know, what's happening where, you know, less than 1% or I don't even know if any plastic bags or film is really recycled. And uh, I think... Wait, is that... Yeah. 
do you know like well, that's our question like when you go back to the grocery store and they they take their plastic bags for recycling which is a small amount statistically mm -hmm. that's just who bothers to bring their bags back to the grocery store our question is do they really recycle those my understanding is that has been part of a massive failed experiment um, uh -huh. and i can't remember the name of the organization that collected that information or was participating in it but that was kind of part of a, of a greater effort by I think a lot of industry groups, not just plastic bag returns, but a lot of like those bubble mailers that you'll get, mm -hmm. you know, like the Amazon, which you can return at, you know, a lot of big box stores. And they collected, I don't know how many tons, thousands of tons of, of these bags and different kinds of film and stuff. And then they ended up, I think, just landfilling it or incinerating it all of it because there wasn't actually a market. And I will, I promise after this conversation, I'll, um, point you in the direction of that information. But I think okay. that's just another example of it's collected, but that doesn't mean it actually got recycled. <laughs> well, we'll put that, we'll, when you send me that, I'll put that in the, we do a, a transcription of the uh, episodes now, and I'll put the link in there so people can go read that, that uh, article. Hey, Zero Waste Squad. We're gonna take a minute and run an ad for a company that we love, Compost Nashville. Composting doesn't have to be complicated, messy, or even time-consuming. Compost Nashville can set you up with a lidded bucket to store all of your food scraps and compostable materials that gets picked up once a week from your doorstep. It's that easy. By signing up, you're not only diverting 30% of trash that would normally go into the landfill, but you're also getting finished compost to use in your own yard twice a year. Not into gardening? No problem. Compost Nashville lets you donate your finished compost to a local farm or community garden. Last year, your fellow Nashvillians used this service to divert 730 tons from the landfill. This 1.5 million pounds of compost removed over 1,400 metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions from the air. That's like taking 3,687 cars off the road. Use the code TRASHTALK for 50% off your first month when you sign up at compostnashville.org. Um, so, yeah, th so there's two things th that come to mind here. First of all, that plastic film is easily recyclable, correct? As from what I understand, plastic films like plastic bags and stuff is something that they can be made into other plastic bags. So like a one-to-one -one thing, right? Or am I wrong about that? Not to my knowledge, but... I well, maybe that's what I get for reading the plastic film manufacturer's website. <laughs> maybe there I need to get my information. Perfect example. Get my information so, from somewhere else. Yeah, my understanding is uh, film. Film is tough for a couple of reasons. I mean, anytime you have layered film, it's really hard to take apart those layers. You know, they're easily contaminated. There's just not a whole lot of material per weight. So I think even if it was theoretically possible, the cost of doing so is way more expensive than just you know, basically extruding a new virgin plastic film bag. So I think there's kind of financial barriers. And then technically, I don't know, like most plastic recycling right now is what's called mechanical recycling. So there's actual instruments that, you know, like chop up different kinds of plastic into tiny pieces and then it can be kind of remolded or turned into different things. And there are just a lot of limitations in terms of what can be recycled or as you guys know, kind of down cycle. Like I think a lot of those kind of containers that you find like strawberries in like those thin clear, but that's like uh, usually like second phase of like number one plastics, um, you know, so there are some kind of dependable markets, but I think 
I think the new frontier when it comes to recycling film and a lot of other really hard to recycle plastics, numbers three through seven, film, all that kind of stuff, is something called chemical recycling, where instead of mechanically breaking plastic down and turning it into something else, they're actually, in some cases, melting it down into like its original polymer. I'm not like a, a chemist or a chemical engineer, so, <laughs> but, the, and there are different technologies called, you know, hydropyrolysis and pyrolysis and gasification, but they're all kind of different versions of the same thing where they take a plastic product and then usually turn it into either some sort of base polymer or feedstock, or in many cases, like another, like a fossil fuel, like melted into like an airline, like a diesel fuel or something. And that is, uh, it, it sounds maybe good at first, but I think it's a technology that really kind of scares me because I think it's just perpetuating the same thing that I think is a fundamental problem with plastic. And I wrote about in my article, which is that it doesn't maintain value over time. Like you look at metals and glass and stuff like that, you know, you, there is a certain ability to infinitely recycle. So if we started building facilities all over the country to chemically recycle all of these mixed plastics and turn it into a diesel fuel, is like a whole nother, you know, <laughs> should we keep burning fossil fuels? Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you kind of create this situation that we've created with a lot of incinerators over time. It's where you, you have to feed the beast. You have to feed the beast with more single-use plastic waste. And we know that a certain percentage of that is going to escape into the environment or, you know, be too contaminated or, or whatever. Right. Um, and so I think that's, I think it's really kind of a, a trap more than anything. I, there may be, and I don't know, I think, you know, the, the only acceptable version of the technology in my mind is if there is a way to preserve the quality of the polymer, if you can actually melt something down and then turn it into a product of equal or better value. And there may be a way to do that with plastic bags. I, I keep hearing promises, <laughs> although I have yet to see people deliver on those promises. And my understanding is this, all those technologies are also pretty expensive and would require taxpayer subsidization and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there may be opportunities like that to, to actually keep those, you know, polymers alive and not have to keep producing new plastics. But we, right. we're, we're, far from, we're far from that. Well, Sorry, that's, that was a wonky. That's okay. Side. That, no, it's and that's interesting <laughs> that you bring that up because we, uh, one of the people uh, places on my radar here in Tennessee, the Eastman Chemical Company, it's actually it used to be part of Eastman Kodak, and in the '40s they were created to, because there was a shortage on fossil fuels because of the war efforts, and 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 they were created to, continue to uh, develop technologies to let Eastman Kodak make film stock, even if they couldn't get fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And so they have been spun off into their own company. And I saw an article recently on, uh, I don't remember what it was, Earth 911 or one of those, um, talking about that uh, uh, facility and that they do chemical, they're doing chemical uh, plastic recycling. And so that was the other part of what I was going to mention earlier is just because you can, should you? <laughs> and uh, is it the best use? Uh, I, you probably know about this study. I, I saw one. It's from, it's from uh, Oregon. Oh, now I can't remember the organization that did it. And, and they did a life cycle analysis from every single step along the way, from digging things out of the ground and, and making it and the energy and delivery costs and and then the shipping things to the stores, uh, using them, and then putting them in landfill or recycling. 
and a lot of what they came up with, it, a lot of times it was better for the environment just to put things in the land, make them lightweight and put it in the landfill. Wow. That it, was, it wasn't as clear cut as I thought. It was actually kind of confusing to even wrap your head around because one of the examples <laughs> they gave was a tuna can having more impact overall than a, one of those mixed material plastic aluminum uh, tuna packets. And I was a little surprised at that. They're saying if you just bury that in the, in the earth, in the landfill, you're, you've done the environment a favor because the energy used to reproduce that, even though it's tin and, and can do over and over again. Anyway, <laughs> one of the yeah. things that started me thinking about was that sometimes maybe you shouldn't be recycling just because we can, but I don't know where that leads us. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going to read your last, so sorry, I knew it was going to happen. Samson, <laughs> Sam. Come here, Bubba. Um, that's Sam. He's my passionate about this subject. That's right. He is. He's a <laughs> He's good boy. He's chiming in. Um, you said by continuing to reduce our disposable plastic and build innovative systems to collect and reuse instead, we can avoid having to order from the same old recycling menu. We need to convince our leaders to reclaim their sanity and do the same. And I want to transition into that. How do we convince our leaders to reclaim their sanity and do the same? How do we make this federally a law? How do we get the truth out and, and mm -hmm. change the system from that level? Because that's where the magic is going to happen. And it just seems really far-fetched for people like myself and Michael. Like, how do we, how do, we do that? Mm -hmm. Oh, man, that's such a great question. I do think in some ways people underestimate their ability to change the system, like as like a, as a voter, at a, as a, you know, constituent of, you know, our uh, various levels of government. I think it's great that people, and I include myself in this, you know, try to, to be better as consumers and try to make small changes in our lifestyle. But, you know, I think there are just limits to how far we can do that. There's actually a I think there was a town in Japan, a colleague of mine is writing a blog and I'll forward it to you. I think it's going to be published next week that basically tried to go zero waste. This was like maybe starting 15, 20 years ago. I think I saw and a video on YouTube. You know about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And they got, I mean, you know, they made incredible progress, but like to a certain extent, like you just can't avoid it because our system surrounds us with, you know, these kind of, you know, choices, you know, or, or I guess lack of choices. Um, and so I, yeah, I really think there is a lot of potential over the next few years for systemic change, especially through policy. I mean, I'm a policy person, I'll say that. So I tend to view things through the lens of policy, but I believe in the power of good policy. And I think things like limiting our use of plastic bags and styrofoam containers is a great start. Um, and there is stuff happening right now. I think we just have to make sure that, you know, I think a lot of our elected leaders, you know, are pretty easily convinced by some of these arguments around chemical recycling and, and the industry's always been really effective in terms of, you know, kind of um, furthering messages that kind of improve their own bottom line. But I also think there are alternatives that are being proposed at the same time. And I think we just need to get more of our elected leaders on board with those ideas. So there actually is a federal bill right now. And I and many other people have spent a lot of time working on it. And it's called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. Mm -hmm. And it includes all kinds of, there's a number of ordinances within the bill itself, including bans on certain single-use plastics and um, requirements of 
recycle content for certain things um, to ensure that like the number ones and twos containers that are recycled are actually bought and used by companies and new products, which is a whole other thing. Cheap oil prices, companies will immediately just go back to virgin. Um, there's even a moratorium on new plastic facilities, basically saying like, you know, stop, stop all of this refinement. Um, we need to figure out what we're actually putting into the air and water as a part of these manufacturing processes, which is a whole nother really interesting conversation upstream and about the local communities and in places where we're doing a lot of that stuff and, and the Gulf Coast and, and um, Ohio River Valley and Appalachia. Um, and, but the, 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 I think the core of that bill, or maybe the thing that I'm most excited about in terms of systemic change is something called producer responsibility. So right now, if you're Coca-Cola, not to pick on Coca-Cola, but let's just, you know, Coca-Cola, you make a, a bottle, a plastic bottle, there, uh, there's really no incentive for you to make a bottle that's more recyclable, and you don't have to pay a dime for the cost of collecting that bottle or sorting that bottle or whatever happens to it, whether it's recycled or landfilled or incinerated, that's all on us as taxpayers, paying for the collection, paying for the trucks, paying for the optical sorting and the manual sorting in these facilities, all of that stuff. And the simple, I, I, it, you know, it's really kind of an old idea, which is like polluter pays, um, you know, some of our most fundamental environmental policies are based on that idea of polluters should pay for the cost of the pollution and, and the things that they create. And so without getting kind of too wonky and detailed, I think that has a lot of promise because I think as soon as companies have to pay for the cost of their products on the environment, the cost in terms of collection and all that kind of stuff, they're going to be uh, incentivized to make more reusable products and make more products that actually yes. might be recycled. Yes. Have you heard of the Citizens Climate Lobby? Yes. The CCL? Mm -hmm. I just got involved with them and I was involved in um, some meetings. They just had a conference a few, probably a few weeks ago, and I learned about the Bipartisan Climate Solution, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, are all those mm -hmm. things basically along the same lines? They want to basically have these companies, these fossil fuel companies, be responsible for what they're doing with fees, yeah. carbon fees, carbon dividends, things like that. Yeah, I think in, in many ways it is very, it is very similar. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, forcing companies who are, you know, doing bad things to to cover the cost of those. And yeah, you could call you could call them fees. Um, a lot of in, in the kind of plastic packaging space, they're often called eco-modulated fees because it, <laughs> I know it's, but the reason is like, if you, for example, if you, the construct, like how you actually structure these fees ends up being pretty important because if you prioritize products that are lightweight, you might actually be incentivizing people making more plastic. Like Michael, you were saying plastic is pretty lightweight. So I think how you actually set up these systems to prioritize things and hopefully disincentivize things that are wasteful is a big part of it. But we've actually seen these systems work really well. The, the whole idea is actually not very new. There's a lot of specialty and hazardous products that have been part of producer responsibility policies for a long time. So things like um, paint and car batteries, and in some places, carpets and mattresses, things that are really hard to recycle, um, or in some tires. cases hazardous. Yeah, I think, um, I think tires. Mm -hmm. And so 
um, oftentimes people don't even know it, but they might be paying a little bit extra for these items. But that money goes towards a system where they can safely collect and recycle these products or break them, you know, as best as best they can. Um, and at the same time, because of that added price, you know, the idea is that those companies are going to be, you know, a little bit more incentivized to make a more recyclable product. I think that'll be especially true with packaging. And I, and I think that's, I, I see some of the writing on the wall, because like you're talking about the history of this is like our super fun sites here in America. If you're, if you're, if you polluted a, a site that's designated a super fun cleanup, your company is responsible for 75% of that cleanup. And my theory is that Coca-Cola and Pepsi, when they broke away from the plastic manufacturing association, mm -hmm. they see the writing on the wall for some of that coming because mm -hmm. there is a historical precedence for it and legal precedence. I also think that there's probably a switch that flips somewhere where they were suddenly like, you know, we're in the sugar water soda business, not the plastic bottle business. Why do we need to go down with the plastic and the fossil fuel companies? Mm -hmm. So regardless to me of their motives, they're, they're making some moves that I appreciate. Yeah. Um, and people yell greenwashing at the big companies all the time, but I like to point out that if Coca-Cola who sells, what is that? I've said the statistic before. I don't remember. It's, oh, it's a, over a billion drinks, soft drinks, a, a bottled drinks a day in the world. And if they even cut 1% out, it's more than most of us can achieve in our lifetimes of working as activists. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad to see them do that. Um, but so your bill, and, and, and there's also precedent for that in the German packaging bills uh, that, you mm -hmm. know, we've talked about that on our podcast before mm -hmm. from yeah. as mm -hmm. far back as 91, they make the producers responsible and it works right. there. Um, so how do we support, how do we find out more about the breakaway from break, break away or break free from plastic? Break free from. Break free yeah. from plastic bill. Because I keep hearing that come up, but I, I actually haven't gone and looked up the actual mm -hmm bill before. So is there somewhere that we can go that we can look at it that not just the legalese, but the synopsis of what's going on with that and so that we can understand it and mm -hmm. support it? So uh, the the bill, there actually, there's a bill in, in the Senate and bill in the House, they're companion bills. And the sponsor in the Senate is Senator Tom Udall uh, from New Mexico, who's been a big champion on this issue. And uh, in the House side, Representative Alan Lowenthal. And I believe both of their websites have kind of a more condensed, reader friendly version of the bill. In fact, I think I'm looking at the one from Udall right now. They have an outline of some of the components of the legislation. Um, and they also have, I think, a bunch of quotes from kind of leaders and environmentalists on why they think it's such a great thing. Mm. I'm, I'm in there somewhere. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So, yeah. So I think if for, for the listeners out there, if you Google Tom Udall or Senator Udall, Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, you'll, you'll probably, that might be even the first hit on your search engine. Um, you should see Sweet. the out, outline. So, which is, I think, yeah, much more friendly than reading the actual bill on Congress's website, which you yeah. can also do if you really want to. But <laughs> I have friends that do that. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, then they tell me I what it that, means later. I'm supposed to. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm one of those people, but I like yeah, to be one of those people. I'll read it sometimes, too. I get into the nitty-gritty. Read the manual. I'm read saving your info, print. Alex. Yeah. You're now uh, my translator. There you go. Okay. We'll just call you when we want translation. So <laughs> yeah, is, will, that, is, or will those bills go up 
with the in in the current cycle or will that be pushed down the line do we know is there do we need to like immediately call our our uh, representatives and say vote for this or is this not up yet for votes uh it is i mean it's a live bill and there are you know we're gathering co-sponsors trying to get other senators and, and congress people to support the bill so now is definitely a great time to reach out to your representative and tell them that they should support the bill and why you think they should um, it has been assigned to committee, but it hasn't been actually heard yet. So there's still time even for more um, congressional leadership to jump on and official support of the bill. So now's a great time to do it. Um, look up who your Congress people are and give them a call or write them an email. Um, I really do think those actions make more of a difference than people think. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Plastic Free July, I don't know if you guys have been fine. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of like a, a theme. So I know a lot of organizations working on this issue are kind of putting together some organized efforts to get calls and emails into Congress people this month, actually. I don't know, to your question, because of the pandemic, so much of congressional action has been focused on relief and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I don't know exactly how things are going to move forward. But it's definitely not too late. Um, I still think it's, a, you know, the idea is revolutionary enough. I would be shocked if it really kind of got all the way through the process in a serious way this year. But I still think it's an incredibly important statement. I think there are a lot of things in the bill to be proud of. And what's kind of cool and interesting and different than any other bill I've experienced is that um, usually these ideas kind of start at the local level and state level and then eventually kind of the federal level and it actually has happened a little bit backwards where no state yet has put together a package of all these ideas in one bill it almost skipped ahead and, and in this case senator udall and representative lowenthal said you know what let's just put it all together and do this and, right. and and make it sort of make it this you know thing that we can all aspire to and so i actually think what will happen over the next year or so especially is we will see um, state governments kind of take this bill or a lot of similar elements and and try to move it through at the state level and so i think there will be tons of opportunities as advocates and constituents for us to also reach out to state leadership as they try to, because I think what'll, what's more likely to happen, if history is any indication, is that we'll see these things, these ideas of producer responsibility and um, you know all of the elements that are that are here in this bill. I think we'll we'll see those actually pass at the state level before they pass at the federal level. Yeah, sweet. Right, we're going to work on that. We'll work on that even at the local city level because that's yeah. where yeah, totally. we're trying to be involved with the local politics and find out who. Who's mm -hmm. on, on team climate? Who's on mm -hmm. team planet? And, and I think uh, the next step yeah. for you and I, Michael, yeah, is to just really get into that bill and, and figure out all the, the key points to it and how to communicate that with our listeners. And, and easy peasy. Look, look, it's, it really is that easy to look up your representatives. I've done it quite a few times these last few months and never have I done that before. And now it's like, oh, getting back on, <laughs> get, yeah. get back on there. But we can link that too. We can link that in our website in the transcription mm -hmm. too. Great. This is this is like one of the things we were talking about with styrofoam recycling and answering answering questions on the forums about oh is this recyclable? Where can I take it? And it's like you know what uh, you'd be better. Your time would be better spent, and the environment will be helped more if you stopped and emailed the manufacturer and your representatives about your displeasure about these products. 
than it would be to drive 20 minutes to take your styrofoam to be recycled. And I think that uh, I think you're right that a lot of us do have more power. And Maris, you know, I do this all the time. Every package, I, everything I buy, I look at it and like, you know, right now I'm going through coffee packaging. I just ordered from a sustainable con- company that actually has compostable uh, bags for their coffee. And uh, I've been trying to find that. And I email every coffee company, all the local ones here in Nashville, and I get on their social media and ask them why their bags aren't compostable. And uh, I think if they hear that enough, they will no longer say no one's asking for it. And that I think we have to do that. That is such an interesting question, too. Just, just to say, talk about coffee for one more second. Coffee is a great ingredient for compost. You can compost your coffee grinds. And yeah. why wouldn't we have a bag that can also right. go in there, too? Why not? Exactly. But anyway, anywho, Alex, true love, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday to, to speak with us. And we will be looking for you. Is there, are there any things coming up that we can support you in or basically we can keep in touch? You know? Yeah, let's keep in touch. And I think, yeah, I think support the stuff that's happening. Um, you know, I, we talked about the federal bill and uh, I mean, a lot of stuff in, in the policy space, like I said, is focused on, you know, pandemic relief and that kind of stuff. So I think it might be a little bit until our elected leaders are focused on all of the other problems that are still happening during right. this time, like plastic that haven't pollution. Disappeared. <laughs> right, that haven't disappeared at all. Um, you know, it's just tough because there's only so much oxygen um, in terms of, you know, public attention. But yeah, I think there's, right. there'll be plenty of opportunities to work on stuff. I'll do my best to keep you all updated. And in the meantime, yeah, call call your representatives about this. this is great Call your goal. representatives. Great place to start. Yeah. Well, hey, can I, I'd like yeah, to give yeah. one quick idea real quick. Uh, because it's about getting people to call. And, I, and I, it always baffles me that big organizations or even small, powerful organizations don't do this. Um, I would like to see organizations like, what's your acronym again? USPIRG, P-I-R-G. USPIRG. Um, I think your social media people should be active on every single city's zero waste Facebook page. Uh, I mean, I know that I go on on Sundays and drink coffee and I find other groups in other cities and I connect with them and I get involved in those conversations. It would be like, as you're trying to help pass this this law, this seems like the, the target audience would be zero waste Facebook groups. And I don't see mm-hmm. a lot of organizations. We even had to invite the, the Nashville, uh, you know, Metro Solid Waste people were like, look, you guys are, we, we approved your membership of our site, post, you put information there, share it. Right. And uh, it baffles me that we don't see a lot of that happening. So I'm just going to put that out there right. that some big organizations start surfing the web for zero waste groups. We're out there. All right. I hear you. And I will, um, if it helps, I will send, we actually have a link through USPIRG if people want to write their congressperson too, where you basically put in your name, zip code, there's like a message already there that you can, I yeah. think, tweak if you want to. So if that's easier, I'll, I'll, you guys can share that too. Absolutely. Well, this is another successful episode of Zero Waste Trash Talk with our special guest, Alex Trula. My name is Maris. I'm Michael Britt. And that's Michael Britt. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It was great meeting you, Alex. Thanks. Yeah. Keep, keep up the good work. Yeah, you guys too. It's great to have these channels where we can have these conversations. 